G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. We took the door off the side so I could hang out of the side of the helicopter. They tied me in with a rope. It wasn't equipped with a real professional rig. I didn't realize, though, there was a loop in the rope we had forgotten about. And so when we took off, we headed out over Kingston Bay, and he turned really sharp to turn toward the stadium, and I literally went out of the helicopter and uh, had my feet on the little runners down there, but I was dangling by this rope. And all I could think of at the time was keep the shot in focus. The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and welcome to The Story, or should I say, Stories, as today we have two conversations for you. Karen Hunt caught up with Jim Thompson, who combines being a nurse with being a pastor in order to better minister to people in remote areas of Australia. But first, Greg Newman has a chat with American Christian media consultant Phil Cook, who's the founder of his own production company called Cook Pictures, and he'll share what it's like to be a Christian in the Hollywood movie industry. Phil begins by telling us what it's like growing up as a son of a pastor. Uh, it was interesting. Back in those days, we uh, I, I mowed the cemetery. I took care of the communion wafers. I filled all the communion cups. I climbed the steeple to play a 33 RPM of church bells. That's the best we could do back in those days. And uh, But I'll tell you, my dad was a great storyteller. He was a preacher. And early on, listening to him preach, I learned the power of telling great stories. And so somehow that just latched on to me in a big way. And uh, when I got into high school, I, start, I, I borrowed his Super 8 movie camera back in those days. Remember Super 8? and uh, started making movies. And we made mafia movies and war movies and sports movies and space movies, and they were all terrible. But I really got addicted to how you could use a camera to tell a, a powerful story, and it's really never left. Okay, we're going to get on to that. We'll, we'll stay back in those early days. So Phil, pastor's son, one would assume just grew up loving the Lord. It was all rosy, <laughs> gave your heart to Jesus at seven. Now, what was the story? Well, I was a pretty good kid. I, w- I was not the rebellious, but my younger sister was a little more rebellious than me. But uh, I-, I was actually a pretty good kid, partly because I was an athlete. And um, I had coaches that were there to-, to yell at me and make sure I was on the straight and narrow. And uh, I ran track and I was a gymnastic. So I had to, I had to be in great shape and work out. So there was a lot of people looking over my shoulder. So I didn't have a chance too much to rebel back in those days. But I was in junior high, high school, middle school, and high school. They call it today. And um, back in the late 60s, early 70s. So it was an interesting time to be a teenager back then. And uh, I did learn a little bit about rock and roll and that stuff. And, and we had a great time. It was, it was fun. Um, media was really coming into its own. That was back in the glory days of radio in many ways. And so uh, media just got, in, I just got infected with this idea that you could use cameras, you could use microphones, you could use lights, you could use media to tell a story that would really impact people's lives. And um, I've really never looked back ever. 
So we're talking about this uh, love developing when, when you were a young teenager. Yeah, uh, very much uh, a young teenager. And, you know, my, uh, my dad had a type, I'll never forget, my dad had a typewriter. And I learned to type early. And uh, writing was always a big thing for me. I loved writing stories. And uh, my dad had been a Marine back in World War II. In fact, he, had been, he was stationed in Australia. And uh, he had unbelievable stories about his time here. And he would come back and just, oh, tell uh, these unbelievable stories. And I would just sit there mesmerized. And so I started reading at an early age. I, I try to get parents today to get their kids reading as early as possible and kind of guide them into reading the right thing. We live in such a generation now that they're more video game oriented than anything else. But I think reading is still absolutely critical in shaping a young person's mind and driving them in the direction they really need to go. So that started me early on. And uh, today I have about 7,000 books in my library. I'm a little obsessive about reading today. And uh, it's, it's, it's been a fantastic experience. Okay, so we left school, and, and did you move immediately into an industry where you're filming? I left college. Uh, I was in the Midwest, and um, I, I went to Los Angeles to seek my fame and fortune, and I was there for a year, and uh, I was just doing everything to get on a film set or a television studio set. I was pushing camera dollies, and I was pulling cable, and I was setting lights, and uh, then an organization in the Midwest asked me to move back and um, where I would have a chance to be an assistant director and eventually learn to direct, so I went back. To, plus, I was, I, had a, uh, I was engaged to my wife, Kathleen, and I thought, I better have a little more stable job, and so I went back to the Midwest and started directing working for a big nonprofit organization there. And we were there for about um, eight or 10 years. And then in 1991, we decided to take the big plunge and uh, moved to Los Angeles. Uh, we set up our company, Cook Pictures, and I've been there ever since. But there was a period of your life, I think, when you were about 36, where yeah. you lost, lost the job? I got fired when I was 36, and uh, it was out of the blue. It wasn't anything to, I mean, it was, it was nothing to do with the quality of my work. They just decided the boss didn't like me anymore and uh, pulled the trigger and fired me. And the truth is, looking back on those days, I think uh, it was the best thing that ever happened. I was obviously devastated. I was disappointed. I, I felt, you know, like a failure. And I would say that to a lot of people now, that you may be fired, you may be terminated from your job. But once you get a little perspective on the situation, in many cases, you'll realize it's the best thing that ever happened to you. For me, you know, and I, I think God fired me. The people didn't fire me. God did because he needed to push me out to where I was taking a risk again, trying new things, uh, pushing the envelope, and uh, it, it made a huge, huge difference for me. In fact, uh, I was just stunned at uh, how my career took off after being fired, and it woke me up to the fact that we need to constantly be exploring new things. I started working as a freelance director and a cameraman and uh, writer, and uh, worked individually for a few years, and then launched our company, Cook Pictures. And um, today, we, we're in Burbank, California. We're about two blocks from Walt Disney Studios, about a mile from Warner Brothers and a number of other places. And um, it's been a, an amazing, amazing ride. Uh, we've never missed a paycheck. Uh, we've been able to produce some great programs. And we've done both uh, programs for the mainstream market, network television, public broadcasting, also for the nonprofit and Christian market. And we've done a lot of things in both areas. And um, we, we feel like we've really had an impact and we've had a great team. And I've probably shot programming in about 50 countries around the world. Because, because we work with nonprofit organizations, we're sent 
to a lot of very difficult places. I've been in Africa quite a few times, been caught up in a couple military coups there, fell out of a helicopter filming in Jamaica. Uh, we just had all kinds of problems, had my crew threatened with prison uh, in one country. And so, but let me tell you, it's great stories for your grandkids, great stories for the grandkids. Uh, actually, <laughs> you've just taken away a few of my questions there in a couple of sentences about those uh, well, well, let's get into a little bit more detail. For instance, you 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 were shot at and, and and fell out of a helicopter. I mean, how did all that feel? Well, it, it, it makes you nervous. I was shooting an event in Jamaica at the Jamaica National Stadium, and I realized early on in the middle of the day that this place was going to be packed. And I thought the best place to get a shot of this is from up in the air. And so there, at that time, back in those days, it was the eight, early eighties, and there was no um, or mid eighties, and there was no helicopter company in the in on the island. That certainly, that special in shooting. So I ran across country to the um, Red Stripe Beer Company and they had a corporate helicopter and I talked them into letting me use that for an hour. And uh, we took the door off the side so I could hang out of the side of the helicopter. They tied me in with a rope. It wasn't equipped with a real professional rig. Tied me in with a rope. I didn't realize though there was a loop in the rope we had forgotten about. And so when we took off, we headed out over Kingston Bay and he turned really sharp to turn toward the stadium, and I literally went out of the helicopter and uh, had my feet on the little runners down there, but I was dangling by this rope, and all I could think of, of at the time was, keep the shot in focus. <laughs> and uh, But he saw me and jerked the helicopter back and literally flung me into the helicopter, and uh, where I immediately tightened up that rope, and uh, we went out and did the job and got the shot, and it was fantastic, but... It was a bit of a harrowing experience, I'll tell you that. Concluding the conversation now, here's Greg Newman asking Phil about his thoughts on where Hollywood is going in the movie industry. You know, it's funny that um, Hollywood is, uh, I tell people all the time that Hollywood really isn't as anti-family as you think. They just want to make a buck. They'll sell their grandmother to make a buck. And so what's, what we've been trying to do is convince the major studios that the, the family audience is a huge, huge customer base. Uh, the Christian audience is a huge, huge customer base. And they're finding that out with The Passion of the Christ and with movies like Blindside or The Book of Eli. They've certainly found it out recently with um, the, the Bible series that Mark and uh, Mark, Mark Burnett and Roma Downey did for the History Channel, which broke all audience records. And so I think what's happening is studios and networks are just starting to recognize that with, you know, that there's a vast audience out there that we're not serving when we do excessively violent movies or sexually explicit movies. There's, you know, they seem to make some money, but when they do a, a epic like the Chronicles of Narnia, um, those kind of films make a huge amount of money, and I think it, they're starting to wake up to the fact that this is a customer base that we really haven't been focusing on, and we need to turn more in that direction. So I, it's an encouraging sign for me. Obviously, we'll still get a lot of other things, but I think uh, it's very encouraging seeing what's going on in Hollywood today. Well, that's that's all your filmmaking, but uh, you also take the time to write some uh, pretty good books. Jolton, one big thing. Uh, is there another thing that you're uh, working on at the moment? <laughs> Absolutely. I wrote one big thing, discovering what you were born to do, because I, I really felt like after all these years working with major nonprofits, I discovered that the ones that really excel, the ones that get noticed and stand out are the ones that aren't pretty good at a lot of things. They're the ones that are extraordinary at one big thing. So I started applying those principles to people and I wrote one big thing. And now what I want to do is really look at a book focused on how we should be engaging the culture. Everybody talks about changing the world. Everybody talks about how, how we shift the culture, but nobody's really talking about how specifically we do that. And I think in order to change people's behavior, in fact, my wife and I, Kathleen, just 
launched a new nonprofit organization called the Influence Lab, influencelab.com, and where we're going to research and uh, focus on how you do influence culture, how you influence the country, how you influence the world. And uh, through that, I want to I write a book on uh, really what are the key places and ways we can start thinking about how to shift the country, how to shift the culture, and shift people's thinking in a really positive direction. Uh, any other future plans we can just talk about uh, before we wrap up? Got a couple movies in the works, got a couple documentaries in the works, and we continue to work with some very large organizations in the States and around the world, and we're just excited. I think, you know, the, the important thing is be out there as part of the conversation. Be trying to get your voice heard. If you have an idea, if you're a filmmaker, a writer, a business person, a, a ministry or nonprofit leader, you have a vision or a message or an idea, get it out there. Be out there in the battle. Be in the conversation because your ideas, you never, ever know what the power of a single idea can do. So I really encourage people who are listening today, stay out there, stay in the game because you never know what could happen. That was Greg Newman chatting with American Christian media consultant Phil Cook, who's the founder of his own production company called Cook Pictures. To find out more about Phil Cook, you can go to his website, philcook.com. That's philcook, C-O-O-K-E, dot com. Next, Karen Hunt has a chat with Jim Thompson, who combines being a nurse with being a pastor. That and more when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401-132-888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. Or once again, should I say stories, because we have two for you today. Before the break, we heard from American Christian media consultant Phil Cook. And next, Karen Hunt has a chat with Jim Thompson, who combines being a nurse with being a pastor. As we'll hear, this helps Jim minister to people in remote areas of Australia. Tell us about your early years in WA. What were they like? Um, so I was brought up without a father. I, I spent around um, two years in the Parkerville Children's Home. How old were was, you at that at that stage? I was about 10 years old. Yeah. Between 10 and 12, I was uh, in the Children's Home. Interesting years, I'm sure. Well, I, I consider it a fortunate life, really. Yeah. Um, I got to meet some wonderful people who showed me what family life was all about. Hmm. Uh, I was Peter Birch and Wendy Birch, and um, he was an astronomer at Bickley Observatory, and she was a school teacher. And I suppose they were experimenting with me a little bit. They were taking me out on weekends from the children's home and I spent time with them developing and, and also learning what a family was really about, having a father and a mother in that situation there. I think I appreciated that. I'm sure you would. I'm sure you would. What things did you enjoy doing? What did you like? What were you good at? Well, when I was in the children's home, I was actually in the, in the heyday of the space program, so for all, everyone was interested in, in the Apollo program, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I was given the uh, opportunity to go with the astronomer. Uh, but while I was at the children's home, one of the things that kept me stable, I think, was the fact that my grandmother had given me an old copy of um, the King James Bible, and we were always encouraged to, to attend church, um, sometimes more forcefully than not, but I actually quite enjoyed going. It, it made me feel part of something, and, not having a father in Sunday school when they pointed to Jesus and said, well, this is your father. 
it was like I actually had a father. Did you have a concept of a father God or you're saying Jesus was the father figure? I, I, I think I had that concept really early um, in that, that, that there was the father and the son and the Holy Spirit and that I, I focused on, on Jesus more as my friendly father you know, because I didn't have one. And I saw him as my surrogate father, which mm-hmm. is actually a, a, a fact which I developed throughout my life. Mm. So where did you head to in your early teenage years? Now, well, that's been interesting. When I was 15, um, well, I was 14, my mother remarried and we, we actually went to a, um, a farming community. But I was only there for 12 months and then I joined the Navy. I went to the Naval Academy in Perth, Western Australia, the, uh, in Fremantle at HMAS Lewin. Yeah. And then I eventually became a medic um, over in the eastern states. I ended up on a, on the aircraft carrier HMAS Melbourne. Mm. We had many adventures, uh, and then I ended up on the last four years of the 10 years that I spent in the Navy, I was on board the um, submarine HMAS Otway. Tell me, where was God in that picture for you? At that stage, I wasn't seeing God at all. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it wasn't until I was actually in, a, in an event on board the submarine Otway where um, we nearly lost the whole, the whole submarine and the crew. Um, we were on an exercise halfway between Australia and New Zealand, I think it was. And we had a, a massive accident on board the submarine, which involved uh, flooding in the engine room. Um, we lost all our air to our ballast tanks, and the submarine turned upside down and was um, sinking past our maximum diving depth. My goodness. Um, we lost power to drive ourselves to the surface because the, it's a diesel electric and the uh, batteries shorted out. So, and then we had a fire. Uh, we couldn't see a hand in front of our face. Mm. I think our maximum diving depth was 500 feet, but we got to 976 feet or something before the submarine began to stabilise itself. But I remember looking down at a petty officer who has quite often read his Bible. And inside myself, I always knew that God was real, that God existed, but I didn't have time for him. And I think at that moment, when I looked down at that petty officer in that time of expecting death, I saw the smile on his face and I knew that he knew where he was going. That affected me greatly. And I started to look at my life from that point on as, as an opportunity to do better things with my life, better things with myself, and to make an impact on others. Um, to me, the crutch of the Bible is to love one another and to love others more than yourself. And I think I saw that that day. Sounds like you did. Jim, that major incident where you made a decision, hey, I want to be a better man. I do want to make a difference in this world. Tell us, where did life take you from there at the age of 24? I suppose I thought that things might change more rapidly than, than I'd anticipated. But, um, within a year of there, I'd, I'd met the woman of my, of my life, uh, Christine, uh, when the submarine had pulled into Bernie, Tasmania. Uh-huh. And uh, she was actually going to the Salvation Army Church and her father was uh, a Salvation Army minister. So we sort of headed down the church way from the moment that I met her and we were put through a very rigorous pre-marriage indoctrination by the Salvation Army, which I really appreciated at the time. That made me start to focus in on, on the Lord. That indoctrination with the Salvation Army was a, was a wake-up call, really, to focus on what was important in life and to take marriage seriously. Um, you know, I'd been brought up in a, in a family without a father and um, my wife, Christine, had been brought up in, on the opposite side with no mother. So we'd made... Uh, firm commitment to mm. ourselves and you know, to each other that our marriage would last and that whatever the problems that life threw at us, 
we would get over it and, and get on with marriage and, and, um, and make the best of every moment. So you were married there in Tasmania? Um, we actually got married in Perth after I left the Navy about a year later. Okay. So uh, we were married at Seralago Park in Perth. But um, funnily enough, our, our Christian walk didn't didn't take off straight away, even though we were, were the Salvation Army focused us back on onto the Lord. It wasn't until a couple of years later where, and, and I took this story quite often because it's it's about spreading the word of God, and it can be as simple as the way it happened to us, and that uh, we'd met some friends when we moved to Tasmania, and we'd asked them around if they'd like to come around for a barbecue. Yeah. And they kind of looked at each other and said, oh, I'm sorry, we go to church on Sunday. Now, there was a big pregnant pause, and Christine and I had looked at each other and immediately were convicted on the spot. And we said, how about we don't have the barbecue? How about we come to church with you? And that's as simple as that. It was a, a, an offer that was in the air, and the conviction was there, and it happened. Too often people don't you know, take their Christianity to that next level and, and put that offer out there. And what difference did going have upon your lives? Well, that's, that's when uh, the Lord grabbed you by the scruff of the neck, I think, and yeah. um, started to lead me down the right path mm-hmm. um, and showed me what that pathway was. And um, my background was Seventh-day Adventist. My wife's background was Salvation Army, and we actually joined the Pentecostal church. <laughs> so um, from there, I uh, went Went, went ahead in and studying the Word of God um, privately by myself, and then eventually I was I was actually standing in in the backyard one day, and just this this feeling welled up inside me that that my life was nothing without Jesus, that the world had nothing to offer me, and I looked at the trading post and, and everyone's dreams and visions were 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 just up for sale again, and and I looked at it and I thought, well, that nothing in this world has anything for us. In the, in the long run. The only thing of any, any, of any importance is Jesus. And at that moment, I gave my life to the Lord fully and completely, and I knew I was going down the path of becoming a minister, of, of, of being a servant of God, and, and to doing the job properly. I remember walking into my wife very, very sternly and very seriously and looked at her in the face and said, I think God just called me to be a minister. And my wife looked at me very sternly, very severely, and said, I think you need a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I still do. Well, we're all a work in progress. A work in progress and a work in process as well, hey? (laughs) So it was over a process of about 10 years that you stayed in Tasmania. Interesting times? Oh, very interesting. Um, Quite soon after I'd made the decision to serve the Lord, I um, entered the Bethesda Movement's educational program and did a diploma in theology. I then worked with the um, Pastor Cliff Roper at the Scottsdale Church, which is in the north northeast of Tasmania. And I worked with the with the kids there. We actually bought a um, a second hand fire truck and painted it up blue. And we started an organisation called the Christian Rangers. And out of that, we have uh, my leader is now um, the pastor of the Northeast Christian Church. Yeah. And um, one of my other leaders is now an officer in the army. Legacy has been left. Legacy has been left. <laughs> so after the 10 years there, where did you go and why? I'd been in a lot of conflict and um, direction changes and I wasn't sure where the Lord was leading me or where I was going. But um, I decided to enter um, the University of Tasmania and get a degree in nursing. 
Um, that was my main training as a medic in the Navy, so uh, I thought that would be the best way to go for that particular time in my life. And I'd always realised the way Christianity was going, the way the church structures were, there wasn't always a paid income to support your family. So I went into a nursing degree uh, with the intention of doing remote area nursing, uh, which I eventually achieved. After several years building my skill level up, uh, I entered um, um, locum contracts to go into Aboriginal communities and to serve there. And I very quickly learned that the best way to get to the people was to turn up to church on Sunday. <laughs> Sounds good. So you were saying there in Tasmania where you did your nursing degree, you had a desire to work remotely, to work specifically with the Aboriginal community of Australia. Where have you been along the journey in those Aboriginal areas? Well, the first place I went to was in the, uh, the northwest of uh, South Australia into the uh, Aboriginal lands up there, the Pitjantjara lands. Mm-hmm. I served as the clinic manager at Fregon. That was my first introduction to combining both my tent-making abilities as a nurse and my abilities as a pastor. I learned very, very quickly that turning up to church on Sunday was an instant inroads to the people's hearts yeah. because they would then come to the clinic and many people aren't aware of the World Health Organization's definition of health. That is mental, physical and spiritual. Mm-hmm. And very few people have the opportunity to impact on the spiritual side of health. Yeah. And I found it quite easy to be one minute um, taking someone's blood pressure or taking blood and the next minute putting with my hand on their forehead and praying for them in the middle of the clinic. And I've carried that on ever since. God bless you. That's a very special thing to be able to do. Yeah, well, you know, you walk around some of these Aboriginal communities and, and someone will come up to you in the middle of the shopping centre and all of a sudden they're on their knees and, you, and they're saying, will you pray for me? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you've got 10 or 12 people around you and you're praying for them in the, middle of the, in the middle of the supermarket or the middle of the park. It's almost like being like Paul was back in his day, mm-hmm. you know, just, just walking into a community and, and the church is where you happen to be standing. How has it been for you and Christine moving from one community to another? Well, Christine stayed in Broken Hill and I've been a locum, so I would travel out and spend somewhere between six and eight weeks ah. out in the Aboriginal community okay. and then I'd fly back home and spend maybe a month at home. So Broken Hill has been a home base? That's correct, yes. So how many places have you worked as a locum? Uh, over the last 12 years, I've between 30 and 40 separate communities. And how long would so, you stay at each one at a time? Well, some of them were only four or five days. Yeah. And some of them were several months. I suppose what I learned quickly was that each place had a, had a church and each each place had a different church. So I've worked with um, Methodists, I've worked with Roman Catholic, I've worked with Seventh-day Adventists. And one thing I learned very, very quickly as a minister myself was not to leave, not to follow, but to just stand shoulder to shoulder mm. with whoever was there and give them whatever support I possibly could. Thanks for your time, Jim. Appreciate you sharing. Thank you very much, Karen. Have Come a great on. day. Bye-bye. That was Karen Hunt chatting with Jim Thompson, who combines being a nurse with being a pastor. At the time of this recording, Jim was located in Galawinku on Elko Island, just off the coast of the Northern Territory. Now he has relocated to the small town of Yulara in Central Australia. Well, we had an interesting combination of stories for you today with Jim Thompson serving in remote areas of Australia and before that, Phil Cook serving the Lord through media in California. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter where you're geographically located. God can use your gifts and talents in a variety of ways. 
The important thing is that we offer ourselves in service to the Lord. As the Bible says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us for Two Stories. Until next time, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 